Welcome to Beyond the Board, a podcast that explores the themes and real-life inspirations behind our favorite games. On today's episode of Beyond the Board, we'll be discussing the game Codenames. Codenames is a card-based word-guessing game designed by Vladimir Shvadl and published by Czech Games in 2015. Codenames is for two-day players, and a typical game takes 15 minutes to play. Enjoy the episode! fade into a random conversation that we're having. It's yeah. so casual. So, such a clear, easy transition from up to, you know, up, upbeat. Here's us, here's the game that we're going to talk about. And, oh, here's these two goons laughing in the background. And I'm Mike Riemann. And I'm Spencer Campbell. <laughs> and this is Beyond the Board. And this week we're talking about code names. Code names. I have to say, the Mike. The spy thriller. I, it is pretty thrilling playing this it, game sometimes. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I have uh, to say, this game in particular is probably the game I've been playing the most lately. Yeah. I've actually, been playing yeah. a ton of code names. A lot? Really? Like, a lot, a Do you lot. just play by yourself sometimes? Yeah, I just practice. <laughs> I want to be re- I want to be the very best. So, yeah, I, I just study the cards, mostly. <laughs> oh man. I don't want to play this game with you anymore. I do. I, I, I seriously am playing this game all the time, though. Uh, it's, it's an easy, well, it's an easy game because, like, they can go really fast, uh, but they get your brain working, which is really nice. Right. Yeah. My, and, like, my parents are back in town and they love this game. It's it's an easy game that, like, my girlfriend and my friends who are all kind of, like, new to board games, but they like the idea this is a really easy sort of party game that you can bring around and people, they just get it right mm-hmm. away. It's not... It's not an extensive rule list or anything like that that you need. It's it's pretty straightforward, and it's super, super fun. Mm, and it's really easy to be different every single time. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess we should talk about how the game is actually played. Sure. All right, so picture this. You have uh, 25 cards in front of you, and each one has a word on it. And mm-hmm. It could be any word from dog to fire to helicopter to turkey to cat to cook. Uh, and they're all just randomly... Everything under the sun. It yeah. could be anything. They're not related in any way, shape, or form. And the object of the game is that one person, if you're just playing with two people, one person would be the mastermind, and then the other person would be, quote-unquote, the person in the field mm-hmm. trying to figure out who these code names belong to. And they would give clues. And the way they give clues is they would say one word and then a number. And the word is related to however many cards they pick. So, like, for instance, if... The the example on the back of the box is actually really nice, is you can see the following cards. You can see cat, code, dog, turkey, honey, helicopter, and fire. And the example that the code master is giving out is hot two, which means that of those words that I just listed, two of them are directly related to or... Sometimes indirectly, depending on who your your clue giver is, are related to that word hot. And so looking back at that list, and if you can remember what I just said, fire probably jumps out to me, at least initially, of, well, fire is hot, so mm-hmm. they probably want me to guess the word fire. Mm-hmm. But turkey's also hot, but also dog is probably what you're going for, because that's the more obvious one, especially right. if you do two. But you could also say, like, fire three if turkey happened to be the card you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once you, once somebody says, so if they say fire, fire's the word, they'll touch the card, and then you'll put whatever agent color it is. And it's usually red versus blue. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, and the way that the Codemaster is picking the words, they're not picking the words arbitrarily that they want you to select. 
they have a little score sheet in front of them of sorts that is a replica of the 25 cards in front of you, and it's color-coded, so they know, oh, I'm the blue team. I want them to say all the words that are in the blue squares here, essentially. And that's how the game is always so randomized, too, is that that orientation is going to be different all the time because there's a giant stack of orientations alongside the 25 cards that can always be put in a different order. The game will never be the same over and over mm -hmm. again. Yeah, because you can, you can switch... You're right, the, the little map that you have, you can switch it in any direction, which will make the game completely different. But then your cards, you have 25 on the table, and all of those are going to be in a different order every single time. And on the back of all those cards, there's another word. Mm -hmm. So you could just have the 25 cards over, and even if you flip half of them over, you're going to have a completely different game. So yeah, the idea is you can either play this cooperatively, like like Mike was describing the, the two-player, where... I'm giving Mike clues. I just want him to try and get as many of the clues as we can. It's a sort of race against the clock scenario. Or you can play it competitively with two teams. So then you have two clue givers at that point in time, a red team and a blue team, and then a whole bunch of people on the other side that are either on the red team or the blue team. And so red player, red code giver is just trying to get his team or her team to guess the red squares. Blue team only guess the blue squares. Uh -huh. And then, you're, of course, you're listening to the other clues that the other uh, codemaster is giving. Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to figure out, okay, well, what ones are blue? Which ones do I not want? Do that, does that team get it? It ends up being really good and really competitive and gets you to think outside the box for a lot of these words. Because it gets really tricky sometimes, too, where I'll see a connection between, like, three of my words, and I'll be like, perfect. I can say this one word, it'll connect them all. And then I look and I see, oh, wait. It also connects to the red team's mm. word or two words over here. And I don't want my team to guess the other team's words because that's giving them points. Mm -hmm. And so you really have to try and think about how your words are directly related and how they're not related to the other team. And that being said, there's also another aspect of the game is it, not all the cards are red and blue. There can be neutral cards, uh, which if you put down a if you if you pick a word that's not a red or blue card, you'll put a neutral card down, and it just means nobody gets it. The other th card that would be in the area is the assassin card, and if you pick the card, if you pick the card. if you it's pick awful. that one card that's the assassin card, then it's game over automatically. It's mm -hmm. a black card that will uh, that will just stop wherever it is, and so you have to be very careful about saying the right words connected without saying that one word that's connected to the assassin. Sometimes that's really tough because you'll have like sail for the assassin, and then boat is one of your words, and you're like, well, crap. <laughs> right. I I had an instance where I had three countries that were actually words that I wanted my group to guess, and I was just thinking, oh, perfect, I can just say nation or something along those lines. And then I realized that the kill card was China also on the board. And I went, oh, no, I have to avoid that line of reasoning entirely because I don't want to just kill my team off right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's super fun. And I think that ease of the ease of the way the game is played, it really is. It's pretty straightforward. It's just say one word and say a number of, you know, and that number is related to the number of cards that are related to that word. Mm -hmm. And you just switch off teams doing that back and forth. It's. It's really easy to pick up. It's really fun in a party scenario. It's, it's interesting like, to also see how your friends uh, think. Yeah. Because, like, my fiancé and I, we are not necessarily on the same page when we're, when we're thinking about this. Uh, but, but if we go, and if I play with somebody else, we could be, like, right on the same level about thinking about the clues. Right. Like, Freddie Mercury would be a clue for Queen, right. which somebody 
else probably wouldn't think of. Yeah, we there. I've definitely run into instances where you are not on the wavelength <laughs> at all with your team, and it, it can get really, really frustrating. Then you, it, it forces you to get into one another's minds and really think, like, how does Mike think right now? How do I? I have to get into his head and understand why he thinks candy is a good clue for dog because there's no way it is but he thinks it is for some because Franco just ate all that chocolate exactly. and he almost died exactly <laughs> so that's the game it's really really fun uh, it's it's pretty cheap too it's like 20 bucks it's totally worth going to a store and picking up and you can bring it around to all your get togethers and you can play with like 8 people which is really nice you yeah. just only need 2 people and you can play with odd number of people too you just need those 2 spy masters or those code masters to be the leaders of those teams, if you will. Right. So that's the game at its core. Uh, it's a, it's a, the idea is that there are these agents in the field, and you're trying to kind of pass off information or activate them through these code names that they're given. So you're trying to get your team to get the right code names for the agents in the field that they need to get access to. So we thought, well, for today's episode, it's a spy game, and it's a code game, so we should probably talk about those sorts of things. Yeah, and so we're going to start with different organizations that uh, spies would be a part of or that would have spies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have stuff like Interpol, which is a global uh, organization. You have NATO, mm-hmm. uh, and all of these have spies. Uh, you have the CIA, obviously. You have MI6, uh, which is for the UK right? or SIS. Yeah, it's the same organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, I mean, we could go down the, we could list for days all the different organizations across the world and tell you the history of them, but we thought we'd at least talk about or focus on one or two of them, just so you get an idea of what spy organizations are like, and then we can kind of start, once we get an idea of what a spy organization or an intelligence, as they probably prefer to be called, an intelligence uh, association or organization is about, then we can start talking about the practices that are involved in those organizations. Sure. Uh, one of the ones that I, I definitely want to mention uh, is the OSS, which is the Office of Strategic Services, mm-hmm. and they started in World War II, and this was the first of its type because it was actually three different countries that helped create the OSS, and it was America, England, and Canada. At the time, they started what was called Camp X, and... America wanted to be involved in the World War, but they were considered neutral. That was their official position. Mm -hmm. So they had to figure out a way to still be involved. And so they thought about, let's make a spy school, but we can't put it in America. So they actually went to Toronto and put it in Toronto, which is just right on the border. And they got Canada involved, but they also realized that England was already doing this spy thing. And we didn't really have any spies. I say we as America. So if I do say we, that's what Mm -hmm. I mean. But England didn't, England had all these spy things, and we, so we wanted to like really model everything after them, and we asked for their help, and they were like, oh, God, you don't really know anything about being a spy. <laughs> we'll help you out. So they created what was called Camp X, and this was in World War II, and they called it a school for spies. I just think it's so fun, by the way, that it's, it's Camp X, it's in Canada, and you know what my mind immediately goes to is X-Men, the Weapon X Project, and like especially if you look at the, the movies and everything, which is what turned Logan into Wolverine. Yeah. That's all held in Canada as well. And is he, it? He is Canadian, and so, like, there's it's just an interesting, funny parallel between uh, those two things. I guess Marvel did their research. <laughs> so, originally, it wasn't called the Office of Strategic Services. It was just Camp X. And I watched this documentary that talked about, and I actually had people who 
were involved in Camp X. These mm-hmm. older people who were like 90-something years old, and they're like, I remember going to this uh, school for spies, and right. that's what they told us. It was like, you're going to a school for spies. It's in Toronto. But since America didn't have any secret agents, they didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And it was a way of training soldiers that wasn't done in America at all. Uh, but they trained American Canadian agents. A lot of British officers would come over and train them, and they would do crazy stuff. Like, they would be in a classroom learning about explosives, and then all of a sudden, uh, a team would bust in the door, and this guy would run through real quick, and these two other officers would be behind them shooting at them Mm -hmm. with, like, live rounds. And, of course, all the students are ducking under their desk, like, what the hell's going on? And then the instructor's like, okay, everybody, back in your chairs. Now, here, what did you see? How many people were in the room? How many bullets were shot? What did they look like? What were they wearing? Yeah, exactly. 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 It's like that scene in the born in the born movies in the first one where he's sitting they're sitting in like I think it's a diner mm-hmm. and he's talking about how he knows all the license plates of all the cars that are outside he just and he doesn't he know already, why he doesn't know why he, like he knows all the entryways <laughs> and exitways out of the place like he knows how to kill people with like everything that's within hand you know arms reach of him yeah it's that sort of idea and they had to like train these guys to do that because that's not something you think about normally and when we were watching it we were even thinking like Alex and I were watching it and we were thinking like okay well what did happen and we were trying to think back like okay how many people were in the room how many shots were fired and we were kind of off but I feel like the more you're in those situations and that's what they just weren't used to the Americans were not used to this kind of training Mm -hmm. which the English did a lot this guy Paul Dane wrote a manual for training these agents and it was so specific and it had very very uh, specific situations that you could get into and very specific things that you need to act like mm. uh, if to blend in you need to like basically like if you need to be kind of a womanizer you need to drink a little bit uh. like you need to blend in and actually make it seem like you're involved so like some german soldiers don't think that you're not supposed to be i think there's this one guy who's a greek american spy and he was in greece and they because they started hiring a lot of the immigrants in america sure. and it was like it was perfect because they could send him over and they wouldn't think anything else but he had an american watch on and these German soldiers saw that he had an American watch on it, and they came over and talked to them. And he instantly was like, oh, crap, I shouldn't have done this. Uh-huh. I need to think back to my training. And they're like, one of the things in the book was, if you're going to make a, a lie, make it plausible and make it right away. Mm-hmm. If you get caught in it, it's going to obviously be investigated more. And he was said something along the lines of, oh, a German soldier sold it to me. He took it off a dead American. <laughs> There you go. And it was just really quick. He goes, if I didn't have that training, I would have been dead. I would have been caught because I had no idea. And the stories behind these guys are really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a documentary on Netflix. Uh, I can't remember what it's called right now. But it's if you look up spies, you'll find it. It's uh, it's a really good one. But they were also in in charge of taking intelligence from U-boats and deciphering those out in that same Camp X. Um, and Camp X is leveled now. I think they leveled it in the 1970s, and Canada wanted to protect all their secrets. And so there's a lot of stuff you don't really know about Camp X, too. Like uh, they which, built the weaponized Weapon they, X, like they, Logan is out there, he's, actually. He's, he's running around in the woods <laughs> of Canada. That's Bigfoot. <laughs> but the, uh, they took the, the agents that they made at Camp X and brought them into the Office of Strategic Services and actually made that an organization, mm-hmm. which, after the war, was directly uh, used to create the CIA. They used all the same agents in the OSS to create the CIA. Mm-hmm. That's uh, fascinating. Which is in the 1947. 
1947. Yeah. That's 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 so interesting to see how the or well, number one our organization of the CIA that we know was a, a result of like a multinational get together yeah. of sorts too, and one that has now been leveled and we know very little about. But now we've created a new organization that we Tasty still also know kind of a, only a little about. Um, that's that's very very cool. So the, and you mentioned this idea of like the training and the lies that they have to do, and so. These spies, they have a whole host of things that they, they do out in the field. And I think what we should focus on here are everything that's related under the umbrella of espionage. Because mm-hmm. there's a whole host of ways that we, we gather information or gather intel. But espionage in particular is the sort of thing that the spies are really all about. This is where you are getting access to information. Uh, it's being that you should not be privy to or that you should not have access mm-hmm. to and you're either just going and getting it or someone is like willingly giving it to you because they don't realize that you are not supposed to have that sort of information. So this differs a little bit from the idea of like a spy satellite that just flies by, snaps a bunch of photos and now you have a better idea. Like that's intelligence and that's important, but espionage differs from all of that in its approach uh, in that it's this idea that I'm getting something that I know I'm not supposed to get and that you're just going to hand to me because you don't realize that I'm not supposed to have this thing just yet. It's also a lot more dangerous than just those satellite imagery or taking, I mean, nowadays drones, uh, getting in there and taking pictures. Right. And so you have these these spies out in the fields, or as oftentimes they're called agents then in the field. And you have, for the most part, they're covert agents. These are people who are out there They've taken on a persona or an identity to try and blend into a scenario to infiltrate a, a situation or a location so that they can learn more about the location or gather a particular piece of valuable information from it. And I learned that there are also some non-official covert agents that are used out there. And when I say non-official, it means they don't have officially on record a tie back to the government that they, that they work for. They're essentially a deniable asset at that point in time. They, the, so the nation has deniable plausibility. Like, no idea who that is. You can, you can take them out. Like, never heard of them before sort of thing. So that, it's like, that's the real risk right there. Yeah. And, of course, I bring everything back to Shadowrun. That's what Shadowrunners are. Ah, <laughs> oh, jeez. They, they're deniable assets. It's this idea of, no, like, no ties whatsoever. Uh, and that's, like, the high level of danger at that point in time because you can't eventually just be like okay you caught me but i work for you know the u.s government so you you don't want to kill me actually uh these people do not have that benefit at that point in time they could say anything they want but the government doesn't have to agree with any of it right yeah so how do they how do they go about actually gathering this information well there's a whole host of ways Mm -hmm. and information could be anything from like just a little bit of Juicy. I, I think one thing I read was uh, there was a woman uh, who went in and obviously not seduced a German officer, but I, it was it was just getting buddy buddy and close to them. And he mentioned that he was leaving. Like, hey, I only have like a week left. This and then we're leaving. We're heading out. And just something like that is something that they can pass on. German troops are leaving this location. 
in a week. Right. So you'd be surprised. Like just those little tiny uh-huh. things can be incredibly invaluable because on their own they can tip someone off or they can add up really fast. Mm-hmm. Well, it led to the bombing of all the trains in that area, mm-hmm. which nobody knew about except for like three different people. Right. And and it stopped them from actually uh, going to Normandy for D Day, mm-hmm. uh, which was obviously a very important thing that happened. So right. Uh, so like in that instance, that was an, an example of someone actually doing a, a sort of seduction or just getting buddy-to-buddy buddy buddy mm-hmm. sort of thing with people, just seemingly blending in in a scenario to the point where someone just needs to give you a little bit and you can get that information. And then some other ways that they might gather this this intel is through recording devices of, of various kinds, either uh, a concealed device that they're carrying on their person or like a wire sort of thing, or like a, if you bug someone's apartment uh, yeah. and you, you, you gather that, that audio file or that video file and then eventually take that back and spool through it for something of use to you at that point in time. Have you ever been to the Spy Museum in D.C.? Yes. Do you remember? There's a part, and I don't, if anybody's listening who hasn't been, there's, there's an area that shows all the listening devices, mm-hmm. and some of them are like in fake dog poop or actually in a shoe, like, get smart. Right. And it was just really, and, like, they have, like, the guns, the secret guns and the umbrellas. Those are all actual things that existed. I know they're in Hollywood and people see those in movies, but those are real things. There was a a recent interview with, like, an MI6 agent who said, yeah, I mean, we, you know, there is kind of the equivalent of that Q branch where, yeah, they create these wacky (laughs) inventions and whatnot. The problem was... Most of the time in the field, they didn't work very well, so they were there. They were fun in theory, but they weren't always the most reliable sorts of gadget. Like, they couldn't count on their gadgets like James Bond can count on his <laughs> gadgets. So that's why these agents were extensively trained in the way that you were mentioning there at Campax or similar locations, so that they could ultimately count on their own wits and wiles in order to get out of a scenario or to gather the information on their own. So they would, they would either use a recording device, they would kind of get buddy-buddy with them or, like, the idea of honey-potting or seducing, <laughs> kind of like you, you were mentioning there, or even straight-up interrogation, if necessary, to just get the information, whatever it, it takes. And then they had to get the, get the information to either the government that is actually saying that they work for them or the government that's not saying that they work for them, but they need to pass it on. Mm-hmm. And so there are kind of, like, two main ways of doing that. The one is like a cutout, and a cutout is basically just a a trusted either organization or even just a person that the spy and whoever they work for both trust, and it's sort of like a middleman sort of thing, so they pass on the information to that middleman, they assume that the middleman will then pass it on to the the upper you know, government organization or whoever the spy actually works for. Like passing off a briefcase in the middle of a park. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The squirrels are nice this time of year. <laughs> and, and, and that idea also kind of goes alongside the idea of a dead drop then, which is a, a location where you would drop off a, a small parcel of that contains maybe, a, you know, a flash drive with information. Or it's where you pick up an assignment. Or it's, a, it's a given location where people are not meant to actually interact and meet one another. It's go here, you know, go under the bridge in the park. At 2.33, and you'll see a briefcase. Pick that briefcase up and make sure that you put your hat on the ground so that we know you picked it up sort of situation. I feel like nowadays that kind of situation is almost even more important. Because I know you can, I mean, you can use emails and you can encrypt 
certain things going over some wireless mm. transfer. But there's always somebody hacking in, according right. to movies. There's always somebody well, on the other end trying to figure it out. According to now, in modern politics, That's we're true. constantly being... Exactly. Like, our, our private email servers and things like that are not as private or as secure as we think they are. Yeah, so I feel like those those dead drops are even more important now to do if you're going to, like, if you're a spy in the field to, to drop off information. And, like, not even a flash drive. I feel like it has to be a piece of paper right. in handwritten. Like, a paper trail <laughs> is now actually ideal compared to an electronic paper trail. Yeah. That, that's just getting easier and easier to follow up yeah. on. So... There's this whole process of gathering information, passing on the information, and then sometimes they're passing on these messages. And there's this concept called uh, steganography, which is the... It, it differs from cryptography, which we'll, we'll talk about here in a second, which steganography is the idea of that you're passing on a coded, in, coded message or a hidden message, but you don't want it to be clear that the message is being sent at all. So there's no... No even kind of clue that a message has been broadcast, as opposed to in crypt, like in cryptography, when coded messages were being sent during the war, they knew a message was being sent, they knew it was coded, they knew it was something weird or something interesting that they needed to know, but they just had to break the code. That's an example of cryptography in action. Uh, the stenono- the stenog- steganography is this stegosaurus. stegosaurus <laughs> is this idea that they're sending those messages, but they don't even want the idea that the message has been sent to be out there in the ether in the first place. So, like, if you give somebody a newspaper because you're a newspaper boy and it has a message in it, right? That would be an example of steganography. Yeah, in that idea that it's like not an overt, obvious, coded message that's because being it's written in an article in the classified section that he has to look for. Right. <laughs> so that's one of these means of communication with the spies and their organizations. And then, like we briefly alluded to, then there's the other branch, cryptography, which I feel like we should we should talk about codes and cryptography and whatnot, given the fact that this is called code names. It's a it's a game about talking to agents in the field and finding out how certain words are associated and connected with one another, because that's that's all related under this umbrella. It really is a code word that you're giving. Right. Yeah, I mean, you say hot for hot dog, but you're also talking about fire. You're, you're trying to, you're getting the other people or person to decipher your clues. And... And what exactly that word that you've just used there, decipher, it, cipher is exactly the sort of process that we're using in this game. A cipher is a system, a code system, in which you are either translating or substituting or rearranging letters or words for one another in order to understand what the message is. So a really simple cipher would be the letter A is associated with the number 1 because it's the first letter in the alphabet. B is 2, C is 3, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And I could send a message that's all just a string of numbers, and then if you went through and translated them to the proper number that the or the proper letter that it's associated with, you would be able to read my message at that point in time. That's a very straightforward cipher. They wouldn't use that nowadays because <laughs> it's so so easy. But I remember doing that in elementary school. Right. Like, that was the coolest thing. I thought that was like I could I could send codes to anybody. Nobody would know, and I'm so smart for figuring it out. Right. So cryptography, or it's also called cryptology, it's the same idea. It's the study of codes, either written or spoken. Uh, it doesn't really matter the variety. It's this idea of code sending and, co- and decoding of the information that's in those messages. It's actually, 
I mean, it's an ancient practice in that we have always been sending messages to one another with the hopes that either the message doesn't get intercepted at all, or if it does get intercepted, that the person can't figure out what it is that you're trying to say mm-hmm. in the message. I mean, it's it's in its importance in military, you know, personnel or information is ancient at this point in time. I mean, all the way back to the Greeks and beyond is they were sending out these messages of like, you know, make sh- I'll see you on the mountain tomorrow, but really it meant like go through the valley or something like that. Like you really don't want your enemy to know where your troops are or anything like that. Well, it's almost the same reason why they named like Iceland and Greenland, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they named Iceland Iceland because they didn't want people or the Vikings to land on it. Because they did, they were like, "I hey, know it's icy. You don't want to." When it was actually kind of nice, and Greenland, the same thing. It was a terrible place to land. It's but not, yeah, it's not ideal. Not yeah. ideal to live there. So yeah, cryptology is largely based on this idea of using ciphers or systems mm-hmm. like that to create, send, and decode coded messages to individuals or organizations. And like I said, it's it's an ancient practice, but in the more modern age, it, it was kind of popularized or has become what it is or recognizable as we see it today because of the war efforts. So these spy organizations came out of the war efforts. So did our whole study of codes and everything like that. So you see in the in the World Wars the Enigma machine created by the Germans. It was also used by the Italians and the Japanese. So the Axis used these machines that were basically, you would put in plain text. You would have an idea of the message that you wanted to, to, to pass on. And then a, a little light would light up, uh, based off of a, a wired coding system, the letter that you should then type in for that particular letter. And it would, it would kind of just light up these little lamps to tell you what things to type in. And you'd be able to pass that message on to someone. They would see what would look like kind of nonsense, but they would then have an Enigma machine on the other side that was, you know, because they're coded with one another, would be able to translate that message back. And it's the, the only way you could read it is using those other Enigma machines because of whatever code was in right. those. So that's how they were, at least the Axis was sending around these messages. And so it had to be broken. It had to be stopped in order to, to get that information. Because you mentioned the, the spy efforts and how those are useful in terms of getting information. But sometimes we won't have a spy in the situation to get that intel. And so we need to just break the code. And that's where we see people like Alan Turing, who is this phenomenally smart uh, British man who, you know, he's a computer scientist. He was huge in cryptology and things like that. And he basically led the code-breaking efforts in Britain and was constantly working on different maneuvers or methods to break the Enigma machine and be able to access or decode those information or those those messages that people are, are sending out through the Enigma device in particular. Didn't they actually get an Enigma machine, the Allies? Mm-hmm. They found one on, it was a U-boat, wasn't it? Yeah, so that's, a, that's another big part of this whole code thing is you... You can get access to these machines or even these people who speak the code, and then it's whether or not that person was fully trained in it or partially trained or not trained at all, but they happen to be a speaker. We'll talk a little bit about that with the Navajo code breakers, for instance. Um, So, yeah, Alan Turing was kind of... His name is synonymous with this idea of codes or code breaking because of his efforts in World War II. And and he was working in, in the European front, so he was working for Britain and helping against the German war efforts. But then there's the 
on the other side of the war, at least in the through the American perspective, is the everything that's going on in the Pacific theater. Mm-hmm. And that's where we got introduced to the idea, or where it became truly popularized, the code talkers. So the code talkers are fascinating to me because it's essentially people who use a native language that is either extremely rare or is dying out or has died out and there's only a handful of people who still know it or in the instance of some of these languages has no written component to it and using that to send off the coded messages to one another. It actually first started in World War One. Uh, there was a handful of native and it's, it's largely associated with Native American speakers so uh, I believe it was the the Choctaw and the Comanche or no, the Cherokee. The Cherokee and the Choctaw tribes in World War One were actually used to help with some efforts in the European fight against the, the Brits who were pushing in, uh, or sorry, against the Germans who were pushing into France. Um, Don't worry, we'll edit it in post. Perfect. And uh, Hitler actually got really interested in this idea when it came time for his chance at world domination. And he had actually done some research on the Native American code talkers and how to use them. And that's actually why we didn't see them largely used in the European front is because we knew he was already interested in that idea. So he was, he was, he was aware that that scheme worked. So we used it against the Japanese instead in the, on the, in the Pacific theater. And that's really where we saw the Navajo code talkers. Mm-hmm. Had you ever had you ever heard of the Navajo code talkers? I want to say I had a while back, mm-hmm. but I don't know much about them. They're like they're the they're the I guess the most popular or most associated group with this particular thing because mm-hmm. Navajo is a language that is only spoken in the regions the, like Navajo reservations, and I'm pretty sure it was a an unwritten language at at that point, too. So there were very few speakers of it in the first place. Yeah. And it didn't have necessarily a written format to it. And it's grammatically, in terms of its syntax, is actually a pretty complex language. I've noticed that. Like, I mean, if you think about it, you don't ever really see Native American language in general written out. Like, anywhere. Right. You have our English versions of, like, Cherokee or Navajo, but, like, they call themselves that, and there's nowhere written out except for in English. Right. So there's, we we try and, like, phonetically spell out the words that they say, and that's Mm -hmm. the equivalent of the written version at the time. And so Navajo was a virtually unknown language beyond that, that group that knew it. And so there was actually a, a vet from World War I who proposed this idea of, hey, why don't you use the, the, you know, this particular group? He grew up on a, re- a, a Navajo reservation. His name was Philip Johnston. And he proposed this idea, said, just give me a chance. Let me prove it to you. And they, they had some Navajo code talkers who then sent and deciphered a message. Uh, I think it was in like 20 seconds compared to the 30 seconds of the, the machines that they had been traditionally using to send in um, decode information and so it was like oh wow this is way faster and on top of that no one has any idea what they're sending out at that point in time and so they said great let's do this and they developed like a full coded system for it where they actually they had a code a book written out and rules set in place and they they created a written variation of it as well as some like analogs to english words and English spelling of things so that these words would 
like like the word for shark, for instance, meant the word destroyer, which is a type of ship. So it's like codes in codes in codes. Right. Yeah. So rather than even needing to spell out words letter by letter, they would have these these meta- it was essentially little metaphors that a word for you know in replacement of another word that they used within and because no one knew navajo at that time it was it was the one spoken code that was never broken mm-hmm. never throughout the entire war effort was it broken uh-huh. and they had someone captured they had a prisoner in japan who, who they captured a native navajo speaker but since he didn't know the code like he's like, well, I don't know what shark means. Like it says shark. I I don't know exactly. That was that was the the brilliance of it is it wasn't purely that they were speaking Navajo over code or just you know typing out Navajo words, but it had, it was a coded version of the Navajo language. So it had the complexities of the grammar system of an unknown language on top of the abstractness of a code system placed on top of it. So that n- native Navajo speakers had no idea, and they actually had to regularly get together with one another and like update one another because they had to in small patches. They would sometimes take on and create new words for short little campaigns or short little battles, and then they'd get back together and be like, "So we use this word to mean this for this particular scenario. Here, have this word so that you know it, just in case you need it, or if you hear one of us saying it, this is what it means, sort mm-hmm. of thing. So they were always having to kind of update one another on what the the language or the latest <laughs> this code is, was. This is the lingo now. Exactly. It was. <laughs> this is what's cool. And so, yeah, the the whole reason it worked is because of the complexity of the Navajo language. It the the sounds of the the words that are made they're called phonemes, and these phonemes are incredibly different than what Western Europeans at the time were used to hearing, and they mm-hmm. really couldn't produce them. It's the same reason if you are a Western, like, Roman- Romance or Germanic uh, language origin, you have a hard time speaking East Asian languages because mm-hmm. the phonemes, the sounds created by those individual words, you're just not used to either hearing them or producing them. You've never really made them your whole life. And so... And vice versa. Exactly. Yeah. And so Navajo is full of these phonemes that are just completely foreign to you if you didn't grow up speaking, which meant that even if you learned the language later on as an adult, you sounded different than someone who had been speaking it their entire life. Mm -hmm. So there's the phonemes, the complex grammatical system, and the fact that it was unwritten. It made it the perfect solution for codes, and that's why it was never broken. Yeah, that's that's still fascinating. And I'm pretty sure that could be used today. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, people study the Navajo language a little bit more, Mm -hmm. but like... It's not as many people know it. <laughs> yeah, so that you know that sort of code system, there were you know, small words to mean other things, mm-hmm. like shark is destroyer, harkens back to this game that we're playing, yeah. where you say a word and maybe a number of words that you think are associated with it, and it's up to the person to decode that message that you're passing on to them so that they can they can translate it into, well, what is Mike's code system yeah. in his head? How did he program this word? And now I need to decode what he's trying to tell me mm-hmm. and find the words. It really gets you thinking. There's uh, also another version of code names that uses pictures. Yeah. Uh, and if you think about, I know my grandpa was one of those. He was he was one of those people who worked in the CIA mm. who had maps, and he, uh, what were they called? Uh, A cartographer. Yeah, cartographer. But like he would like. He was a cartographer decipher, so like he would find, oh, well, that see that there, that's a cow. 
that's mm. actually a military plant that actually oh, produces, uh, or like a like an ammunitions base. And so he would know, and just by looking at it from a top view, because this was all during World War Two, so like he could tell what these were just sure. by looking at it. And it kind of goes with like you have code names with the pictures. Like yeah, you have to figure they're really out. weird yeah, pictures too, because they're not just like a picture of a bear. It's like. There's one, it was very, very bizarre. It was like a, a fairy, but it had stegosaurus spikes on its back. So it's, it was, it's all these mashups, harkening back to our smash up episode, of these these ideas that are put together. So it's it's no simple task to describe some of these pictures, too. It's, it's very, very fun. There's also a code named After Dark, which is supposed to be the adult version. Mm-hmm. But I think it's like adult, like middle school it's adult. Pretty, it's pretty tame <laughs> in terms of its adultness compared to, like, if you play Cards, Cards Against, Against Humanity yeah. or Joking Hazard or something like that, that that's overt yeah. in its adultness. This, so is, this is more like tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Uh, but Codenames, great, it's a, it's a really fun game, and it's an easy game to play, like we said, with, uh, with a bunch of people, uh, and it's generally for older kids, if you're gonna play it with some younger audience, but if you're adults, it's, it's still a lot of fun, um, tons of fun, highly recommend it, mm-hmm. and it's usually a pretty quick game when you play it, if you're not thinking about it too much, <laughs> right, there's also a timer in there that you can time the yeah, other person can, if they're you taking you can use it to long. kind of, like, push, push people along a little, yeah, well, do you got anything else? That's all I got. Uh, it I was, mean, it we was, could talk more about I mean, we could spies. Talk <laughs> days, and we could spies, pick spies, each spies. Organiz- each organization. And but I think I think that's a pretty good coverage of an idea of what the spies are like, sure. what they're doing, and hopefully it can codes. bring you more of an appreciation for for thinking outside the box, and maybe it'll start your new career in the CIA. You never know. <laughs> never too late well if you like the cia or if you want to send us a coded message or or just be so cool wouldn't that be cool we would never solve it (laughs) we could try uh or if you just want to tell us a comment or or have any questions uh, go ahead and email us at beyondtheboardpodcast at gmail.com if you want to follow us on twitter or instagram we're at going btb for bases that Burn. Burn. Oh, I can't be uh, right. Yeah, well, can't we'll stay leveled, so maybe they burned it down. Who knows? Uh, but if you want to follow us and figure out what's the goings-ons, or if you want to hear, like, hey, wait, the next episode's coming up, go ahead and uh, follow us on Twitter uh, or Instagram at GoingBTB, like I said. Or if you want to subscribe and you like what we did, that'd be great, too. Or if you want to leave a review, that would also be nice. We want to get that uh, that average review going on, which would be really cool. Yeah. So get out there and spy on your friends. Or get your friends to spy on you. No? It's fine. <laughs> it's better than that. <laughs>